0: Our way through the book of Hebrews, and that which I have feared has come upon me because we're up to chapter 6. And if you know the book of Hebrews at all, chapter 6 is a frighteningly difficult passage of Scripture. The title for this morning's teaching is What Should Happen in My Life After I Have Received God's Forgiveness? What Should Happen in My Life After I Have Received God's Forgiveness? We're going to read Hebrews 6, 1-8, through 8, though we're only going to be teaching to the end of verse 3. It'll take at least two Sundays to do Four to 8, and I think you'll see why. Hebrews 6, one. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Four. for it is impossible. Something is impossible, and he's going to get to telling us what that is. It is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, here's what's impossible, he gets to it, to restore them again to repentance. That's that's what's impossible. The reason. Since, middle of six, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. Seven. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles... It is worthless, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Let's pray. Who is adequate to work through some of these texts? We ask just for your enlightening, protecting grace. Guard your church from error help all of us help us not to be dull hearers of your word but alert and sharp to hear what the spirit says to the church and so we invite your presence among us in Jesus name amen this may well be the most challenging teaching passage in the whole new testament let me just tr- let me just try and f- frame it up a little bit, the therefore at the beginning of 6.1 is the writer's way of linking up these verses in chapter 6 with the warning that he launched in the last part of chapter 5, especially chapter 5, 11 through 14, and I really hope you have a Bible, don't just do the screen thing, you need to be underlining, jotting, marking linked to chapter 5, 11 through 14, where he said this, about, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since, here's the reason, you've become dull of hearing, although by this time you ought to be teachers. We spent a couple weeks looking at these verses. You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. So we see the writer's view of Scripture here. Very different from Bruxy and a host of others who are modifying their view. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is, we looked at this phrase, unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice we talked about that to distinguish good from evil and and because our writer knows that this charge this charge of being dull of hearing it's one that's easily just passed on to others or ignored or heard too lightly i mean that's what you would expect from someone dull of hearing they might not hear that So, because of that, he he stays with this warning a little bit longer. He's still there in chapter six. So, our our text today is it's the Holy Spirit's tool for reminding dull of hearing, immature Christians that theirs is it's a very dangerous position, and they shouldn't brush it off lightly. And so, he forces them to to consider the. The possible outcome when you come to those six verse, chapter six, verses four, five, and six. Four, same continuing thought. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Like, like, What do those words mean? I mean, surely no one starts out in the Christian life with a desire, chapter 6, verse 6, to treat the Son of God with contempt. That's the word he uses. Nobody starts out that way. Who are these unrenewable to repentance people? Who are they? That's a good question, church has only argued about that for about 400 years, so it shouldn't be hard to nail that down. How does this happen? I mean, that's the almost impossible assignment before us in this text. Now, those verses in chapter 6, they divide up into two sort of almost self-contained parts. The first three verses are a little easier to deal with, and they're very difficult. And then next Sunday and the one after that, we're going to look at the last five verses pretty carefully. Here's the plan for the morning. I know it's summer. You've got to kind of I'm sorry there's no caffeine in here. You're just going to have to alert yourselves. Here's the plan. We're going to work through what our writer, quite surprisingly, I think, calls the, he calls the elementary doctrine of Christ, 6-1. And then we discover that this elementary doctrine of Christ, it turns out to be plural, not singular. We'll, we'll see what these doctrines are. It's in 1 and 2 how they are a foundation, that's in verse 1, and how they're a foundation for moving on to maturity. Point number one. I know this is a kind of a, a Horban point. It's too long. But I was, I was trying to capsulize where I wanted to go with this first point. So humor me. Point number one, growth in Christ must lead to fresh levels of revealed Christ-likeness, not repeated cycles of foundation laying and rededication after sinning. I want to be clear right up front. I am not saying that God in his grace doesn't welcome back Repentant sinners after periods of repeated failure, sometimes long periods of much repeated failure. He's very gracious. He's not willing that any should perish. And so the prodigal son, first sermon I ever preached in my life in a Bible school chapel with a video camera to have the people critique it, was on the prodigal son. He's welcomed back after... Coming to himself in the old King James. Coming to himself in the far country, Luke 15. But our our Hebrews text is dealing with, with a bit of a deeper issue and a different issue than just repentance. Maybe I can put it this way. In what sense did that prodigal son repent and return home if the following week he left home for the far country again? Or, what if he fled from the father's home to the far country every weekend? Repented, came home, and waited for next weekend. After a while, what what does his coming home mean? And, 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 And what is he doing to his own heart ...with these repeated homecomings. Do you see the issue? So our text our text defines the, the starting place for spiritual life. Our writer, very carefully, he defines it in that first verse, 6-1. Therefore, let us leave... That's strange. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ... And go on to maturity, not laying, again, a foundation of repentance from dead works. One thing. And faith toward God. That's two. Don't be always repenting and turning to God. Repenting, turning to God. Repenting, turning to God. So notice that coupling. I kind of tried to show it there. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. These are um, gateway events to spiritual life. Our own efforts meriting God's favor, gaining his approval, our own efforts are useless. They're dead in making approach to such a holy God. That being the case, of course, faith. If not by works, then faith faith is our only option. That's why repentance from dead works is and faith toward God can never be split apart. They're they're joined together in that first verse. It's not the only place this happens. I don't want to wear you out with references, but here's just one. Paul and his preaching, Acts 20, 18 to 21. When they came to him, they said to him, you yourselves know, he said to them, sir, you know, How I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there, slightly different wording, but you see what he does. The wording is different. The theology is the same. Repentance and, faith aren't, repentance and faith aren't two different actions. They're the same action expressed in different directions. One really can't exist without the other. This whole idea is constantly repeated in varying forms throughout the whole New Testament. The heart of the message is always repent and believe the gospel. Repent, believe. Repent, believe. Repentance by itself is mere self-pity and regret and remorse without believing the gospel. And belief is merely intellectual assent, agreement with some doctrine, apart from a deep changing of mind about sin and a turning from sin. But our text is making a slightly different point. The point here in Hebrews 6 is this this entry into life must never be treated as a destination. That's the point. This issue is sharpened to a finer point when we read, for example, 5.14 and 6.1 together. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and, and go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So, so here's, here's the process of growth in grace. The issue here is God's prescribed path toward that, maturity. Here we have explained the opposite of 5.11, dull hearing. This is moving on to maturity. Dull hearing isn't. And so the the disciple gradually sees the difference between between, uh, goodness and wickedness. Righteousness and sin. He learns to value the one. He learns to abhor and refuse the other. That's what trained by constant practice means. His tastes are being changed. He, he starts to not just pursue righteousness, but prefer righteousness. He doesn't just see sin as restrictions as to things he can't do, but things he doesn't want to to do. That doesn't happen the moment you're saved. It starts then, but that's the process he's talking about. Our writer knows our hearts, the writer of Hebrews. This is not some slight side issue. Now we start to apply this truth. How many times How many times without ever saying it in words do I lighten the weight of the summons of the spirit and the word to to deep hearing and radical change in some area? And I I muffle it just by the quiet, inward, never spoken out loud assumption that I'm, I'm already saved. So how important can this be? Do you get it? I'm already saved. What difference is this going to make? I'm in. What do I have to lose by not applying my soul, not leaning in to obey at this later point of growth? I don't have to change. I'm on my way to heaven. And all you have to do Believe me, believe me. All you have to do is find any pastor in any church, any evangelical church, and he or she will tell you of scores of professing Christians who, who commit sexual sin, who never darken the door of a church, who don't know the book of Genesis from the book of Revelation in their Bibles, who have more fun at the bar Friday night than they would ever have with followers of Jesus, who fill their minds with whatever slot Netflix dishes up and insist to others, and probably have even convinced themselves that they are Christians because of some decision they made a long time ago. Why change? Do you see what our writer's talking about? We need to to leave this foundation of repentance and faith, and you need to start moving on. That's that's why the first thing our writer denounces in today's text is, is the life denying practice of never building on the foundation of repentance, 6 1. Foundations are never meant to be standalone structures. If you get somebody to build you a house, they put the foundation in and drive away and say, enjoy your house. You say, wait a minute. That's not done. It's good. Necessary. But that's not the whole thing. The value of any foundation is revealed by the structure built upon it. There's only one purpose in a foundation. The structure follows the foundation. Please understand, this is not marginalizing the importance of repentance. It's defining the nature of it. By its very nature, repentance is meant to be built upon. That's what the term foundation means. It's not just saying, I'm sorry for the rest of my life. Please understand. Please understand. I'll I'll say it again. The issue here is never how deep and wide and extensive is God's grace. To make that the issue is to pass the buck. The issue here isn't how extensive is God's grace... The issue here is how genuine is my repentance. And and our writer isn't minimizing the importance of repentance from dead works or faith toward God when he says that we must leave these things and move on to maturity. But you don't leave those things in the sense of casting them aside. We leave them, as the text makes clear, in the same sense that that the construction project leaves the foundation by extending the mass of the structure built upon it. This is not ignoring or devaluing the foundation. It's using it. Beginning of uh, late May, beginning of June, Rini and I went to New York. And I, it's crazy because I don't know a thing about it at all but she gets after me, and because this is all over New York. There's, there's, You know, you walk along the sidewalk, and there's the big green board wall, and you know on the other side they're building something. Well, in New York, that's like every other block. And I love, we'll be walking along, and you walk at a pretty brisk pace there, because you just get swept along. And she'll be walking, and she'll turn around half a block later, and I'm at some little hole in that wall, and I'm just looking in there. And I'm constantly amazed at... How much of a building is under the ground? <laughs> Especially something that's going to be, you know, 105 stories. You'd think you'd think they're going to the center of the earth. But just the whole is not the building. The value of that foundation, and the reason it's so important is, it has to hold up all of that building. you miss everything else today, here's what I would like you to remember. It's a never-miss, life-generating principle of how divine grace can powerfully manifest itself in your life. Remember it all your life. I have this conviction that every Christian needs to think through what he or she is asking God to do when we come for forgiveness. What are you asking God to do when you come and say, I've sinned, please forgive me? What are you asking him to do? And here's what I believe. Every time our gracious, merciful God, every time he extends forgiveness to me, he replaces that sin that he forgives with a deeper commitment to obedience, either in that same area or in a totally fresh area of my heart. In other words... He makes my repentance a living foundation for fresh construction. That's how he works. When you ask God to forgive you, and we got part of the truth, and it's a good, it's a good part. We got it in Sunday school classes and courses and songs and little flannel graphs that they used to have when I was a kid. And the picture we had was you had a heart, a heart, and you had some kind of a stain on it, and God comes and he wipes it away, and the teacher would wipe it off, and there. And a lot of Christians have grown up thinking that's a complete picture of what God wants to do when he forgives you, and it's not. It's not. Every time God extends forgiveness, he replaces the sin he forgives, with a deeper commitment to obedience and growth, either in the same area or in a fresh, newly exposed area of my heart. If all you come for is a clean slate, you're never going to understand forgiving grace as the Father wants to extend it in your life. You'll never see it. All right, point number two. Remember, these are the easy three verses. Foundational truths of the faith are never meant to be learned as ends in themselves. Look at the three verses, and you'll get the flow. Let us therefore leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again, here's what we looked at, a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Next, instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, then the resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. So, So, including the first two, repentance and faith, there are six items on that list. I believe that they are stated in forms of three pairs of two, so Repentance from dead works is paired with faith towards God. That's the beginning of the Christian life. Instruction about washings, that's tricky. And that's paired with the laying on of hands. And then finally, the resurrection of the dead with eternal judgment. And the writer gives very little explanation along with those terms. But... Most commentators see them as sort of samplings of truths corresponding to the beginning of the Christian life, repentance and faith. The ongoing corporate life of the Christian, washings, baptisms in some translations, laying on of hands. And third, the the final triumph of the Christian life, the end of the picture, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So I don't think this is meant to be an exhaustive list, but I do think it's, it's sort of a pattern of the whole of Christian experience. Repentance and faith we've studied. The next two are tricky. Washings and laying on of hands. So the ESV translates the first of these two as washings. If you have a King James... I believe it's uh, baptisms. I think, someone can shout out if I'm wrong, I think the NIV has something to do with cleansing rites or something of the like. Close, right? There's a good reason for the variation. The word literally is baptisms with an S on the end. But... The tricky part is it's not the same word translated for baptism anywhere else in the New Testament. This is the only place this is used. Baptisms. Our writer seems to have had a reason for using this one time, this plural, baptisms. And I just want to share with you what I think is happening. Remember this letter's first audience. They are Jewish believers who are being uh, seduced, attacked, drawn back from their commitment to Christ, and they're being called back by Judaizers to the practices of the old covenant. And that covenant, by the way, was just full of washings. There were ceremonial washings by the dozen. And I believe a large part of the instruction for these Jewish believers was was the way in which the atoning work of Christ fulfilled all of these cleansing rituals. So they were clothed in the imputed righteousness of Christ. And, of course, the sign of their participation in Christ, the public sign, was their baptism, right at the beginning of their walk with Jesus. But the reason our writer doesn't just say baptism singular is these Jewish believers are having their baptism in Christ, they're having that explained in comparison with all those other washings. Did I make that clear? Let's pretend I'm speaking to you. Did, I, did, you, did you get what I was saying? Okay. their Christian baptism completed and fulfilled what was only pictured under the Old Covenant. And our writer will come right out and say, in fact, in chapter eight thirteen, that all those Old Testament ceremonies are now obsolete. That's the word he uses, obsolete. You can look it up in the concordance. And this, of course, would be a strong motivation to stand firm in the gospel in the face of their Jewish antagonists. And so our writer is urging these readers to move on from all these instructions to fully appreciating the ongoing ministry of Christ on their behalf. That's what chapter 7 is going to be all about. They weren't to stay at the beginning of the faith. That foundation was already laid. Next on the list, their baptism was linked with the teaching about laying on of hands. I think it works like this. They're coupled. Just as they were baptized in participation with the body of Christ, they were to move on, to grow, to mature in shared ministry in that same body of Christ. So everything from prayer for healing, commission of workers and missionaries like we did this morning. On the whole, nobody tells them to, be you watch. People that care, they'll just come up. I was just, I was just noticing as I was standing behind them, and they'll just automatically just put their hands on them. Where's that come from? I didn't say that. You heard the announcement. I didn't say, come up here, and would you please take your right hand, put it on the left shoulder. But there is something about that kind of engagement, Involvement. Prayer for healing, commission of workers, missionaries, receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, intercessory prayer ministry in the body. There was this deep personal attachment. There was an involvement. There was a linking up. There was a visible togetherness. There was the engagement of Christ himself among his obedient people. Again, our writer would call these Christians and all of us here today We looked at it last Sunday in detail. You ought to be teaching others that phrase. But here, calling us into deeper and fuller ministry in the body of Christ. Instruction's good, that's what we're doing. But instruction must lead each one into ministry to others in the body of Christ. Knowing the truth isn't the goal, it's the foundation. The building on the foundation is ministry involvement in the body of Christ. Remember that without involvement with others in ministry, if you're not involved with others in ministry, all you have is a foundation. Here's what you have for your Christian life you have a hole in the ground. How long are you going to live with that? You desperately need to build on that foundation. This call to ministry, it it will never be fully filled by professional people in the body of Christ. There are people in this church, there are people in Cedarview Community Church who will remain untouched and unreached apart from the ministry of you. Finally, he mentions the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. I was watching, I won't say who, I was watching a guy from quite a long way south. And he was doing a Bible prophecy thing in his church. And he he had from that end of the platform to that end, and much bigger than this platform, and 20 feet high. It was so convenient because he had mapped out every event of Bible prophecy and the exact time it was all going to happen. When our writer talks about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, his interest isn't in what theologians today call eschatology. He's not thinking about eschatology. He's not charting out these events. His concern is he, he wants to help, remember, these struggling Jewish Christians. He wants to give them some, something to hold on to in the face of the persecution, the attack that they're receiving from another religion. And they might just be starting to give up. Maybe you are. This whole thing doesn't work very well, does it? You've had this problem, that sickness, this difficulty, this prayer request, and nothing's happening. What's the point? People get like that. I want to highlight two reasons for our writer's direction in this text as he wraps up with the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Because whatever you might know about Bible prophecy or don't know about Bible prophecy, here's what we're all pretty sure of. Resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, it does seem to be the end of the earthly ball game, Right? We are at least talking about the end of the road here. We know we're dealing with the conclusion of everything. And so our writer, he brings those Jewish readers to the ultimate destination of every life on earth. Your trip to the cemetery is coming. Strangely, that ultimate destination is, in in a way that's hard to explain, it's one of the most ignored and forgotten realities in our mind. I mean, you'd think we couldn't avoid it, but we do. And so our writer, he calls his readers back to what he thinks will be a source of strength and comfort. And so, very quickly, these closing two events. They can do two things for Christian people like us. First... With the coming resurrection, there is a new day and a different life coming for all of us. And, and in this very letter, this is not the only time our writer makes practical use of this truth. Look at an interesting verse with me, just for a second. Hebrews 11.35. Talking about these people of faith and the things God did for them, I don't have time to set up the whole context. Just trust me, I'm not ripping anything uh, out of the sense of the text here. Women received back their dead by resurrection. You've read some of those stories in your Old Testament. Some were tortured. Look at this. Refusing to accept Release. What's that mean, release? So that they might rise again, but to a better life. So so what a strange verse. First, we have we have this wonderful, miraculous testimony of women, probably mothers, who receive back probably their children, And, and you stop and you say, Wow. Talk about your answer to prayer, eh? Dead children. Raised back to life. So, I'm sorry, it just doesn't get any better than that. And the text says, yeah, it does. That's where the next part chimes in. Some, some were tortured. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. So, some, isn't this the Christian life? On the other side of the aisle, there's the person praying and praying and praying and nothing seems to be happening. And on the other side, this woman just had her dead child resurrected from the dead. And I mean, you can put a TV show about that. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise to a better life. So there were others, there were others who, who who experienced no particular visible grace, no deliverance, apparently tortured to death. And then the text says they didn't have to receive that kind of treatment. All they had to do was renounce their faith. The text clearly says these tortured women could have been released, right? But they said no. They would not renounce Christ. Why? Where where, where does that kind of strength come from? The text says, they, so that they might rise again to a better life. You see it? Those mothers who had their children raised from the dead, they had their dead raised again, but to exactly the same life. Those mothers who had their children raised from the dead might see their children die again, depending on who went first, perhaps very painfully. But there is a resurrection coming to the faithful that is being raised to this, that is being raised to a better life. There's there's a resurrection coming that will be a permanent resurrection, and it will be a resurrection not to the same life, but to a new creation. And you have that hope. And the encouragement of this verse is to remember that resurrection. You will, you will not get everything you want in your Christian life. How many would agree with that truth? Yeah. But you will get this. This will give endurance and courage and hope and strength in the face of every temporary trial, persecution, suffering. All right, I said I was going to hurry, and you apparently believed me. The final event on the list the Eternal Judgment, 6 2. Here's why our writer, I think, closes with this event. Remember his audience? These were persecuted Jewish believers. They were apparently being grossly mistreated. This very letter, well, let me, real fast, let me just show you. This very letter will describe some of the mistreatment that they've had. Our writer writes and praises the faithful and says, for you had compassion on those in prison. Why are these people in prison? They didn't rob a bank trumped up charges and all sorts of things because of their faith in Christ. Then he says, you, you people, you had compassion on those people in prison and you, this is weird, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You know what Christians do today? They sue. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, so this letter says that some of these Jewish Christians were beaten, some were imprisoned, some were expelled from their homes and had all their property. What do you got? What do you got in your in your GICs, in your mutual funds? And all of a sudden you find out one day, it's just gone. It's gone. So... The point here is the persecution these Jewish Christians were experiencing wasn't just name-calling. Nah, 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 you followed. It wasn't that. It hurt. It hurt. How? Well, how do disciples respond to that kind of injustice? They remember the final judgment of God. They follow the example of Jesus, by the way. When he, this is Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. You will rarely do a more spiritual act than to be reviled and not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Well, what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him, that's Father God, who, what does God do? Well, he judges justly. Peter says, Jesus rested in Father God's future judgment of all injustice. And Peter says, this is our example. And, our writer in Hebrews writes to those Christians and we Christians here in this room, and he says, learn to do this. Learn to do this. It's it's really hard. And that's why in each of these practical applications of truth, that's why, now I'm summing up, in all of the areas we've talked about, the important thing is, is, is to move on from the foundation and start taking the things that we know and applying them to new, fresh areas of our lives that we're going to need to keep applying them to if we're going to mature until Jesus comes again. Keep building on the foundations of known biblical truth. If I know the truth and I don't apply it to my life, I am what this text calls a dull So there's there's a whole structure of patient, ongoing Christ-like, the forming of Christ, still to be constructed on the foundation of my conversion. 56 years ago. There's still a lot of construction. It's still a building project. The one who called you is faithful to do it. Don't be a dull hearer. Never stand still. Here's what I think is true. The most joyful thing that's going to happen in your walk with Jesus, all right? The most joyful thing that is going to happen in your walk with Jesus is going to be found in the next step you take, building on the foundation of repentance. The next step you take, the joy gets brighter and brighter and brighter. Find somebody that's followed Jesus for a long time. And they'll tell you that's the case. Everyone said?